Last week, we began our new summer series through this little Old Testament book. And it's this short story that's told in eight or six acts, almost like a play. It's set in the time of the judges, and it recounts one family's origin story. And while it reads like a bit of family history, it's so much more. It is one of the significant chapters in God's great narrative of salvation that he's writing across the scope of human history. The other thing that's beautiful about the book of Ruth is it's this little revelation of the gospel in miniature. It's the gospel according to Ruth. And I just absolutely love it, so I'm thrilled for this little detour this summer to dig into it. And today we're going to explore the drama's second act, which I would call... Ruth goes all in. We're going to read uh, several verses this morning. But before we get there, if you missed last week, I want to kind of review where we've been. I want to tell you what we learned in the prologue in the first five verses of the book of Ruth. So we heard about this famine that was descending upon the little town of Bethlehem and of a disaster that befell a family. We met a man named Elimelech. He was this faithful Israelite. He's one family's patriarch. And we met him just as he was experiencing this crisis of trust in his God's character. Because of the famine, he's feeling vulnerable. He's fearing starvation. So he chooses to uproot his family and flee the promised land for the nearby territory, the enemy territory of Moab. Because unlike Judah, Moab was just overflowing with bread at the time. So Elimelech, he's seeking to secure his family's future. So he seizes control of the leadership of his life. And he's heedless of God and God's will. And he leads his family out from under God's protection. Because he believes that Moab will be the answer to all their problems. And we read a proverb last week that says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And last week we saw the results of Elimelech going his own way. Instead of experiencing life and flourishing in Moab, his family only knew catastrophe and destruction. Elimelech dies shortly after their arrival. He's buried in foreign soil. His two sons, Melon and Kilion, they assimilate into kind of the local heathen culture they take for themselves, Moabite brides. And both of Elimelech's daughters-in-law, they, they struggle over a decade of trying to have children. They, they remain childless. They leave the family no heirs to care for it in the next generation. And then... Both of Elimelech's sons follow him to an early grave. And what began as kind of this male-centered tragedy pivots, and it now becomes a tale about the women these men left behind. Three widows who are caught up in the wreckage of Elimelech's crisis of faith. And for these women, the present looks just desperate and dire, and the, fu- the future looks utterly hopeless. And it would be if God himself was also not a character in this story. 
But he is, and he defines himself by his chesed. You guys remember that Hebrew word that we learned last week? Does anyone remember what it means? Chesed means it is God's extraordinary loyalty and his gracious devotion to those whom he calls his own. So indeed, the second act of this story, it kicks off with divine intervention, with God's grace breaking into this tale of woe. And here's what we read in verses 6 and 7. And then Naomi, she arose with her daughters-in-law and returned from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. It's this breath of fresh air in the midst of her despair. She gets news from home, and it's good news. God has mustered himself on behalf of his people. He's visited them in their distress, and he's moved to fill Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. He's refilling it with food once again. And we're not told that the Bethlehemites have done anything to deserve this or to earn this. The narrator calls it a gift. God has smiled upon them. He showered them with his favor, even though they repeatedly have shown themselves to be wayward and false. And while God doesn't always shield us from the consequences of our actions, he is ever faithful He's enthusiastically gracious to those he calls his. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 2.3. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself for that heartbeat of hesed that he has. And it's a reminder of God's chesed, his grace that changes the narrative and prompts Naomi to end their family's exile in Moab. Even despite what we'll see is her own kind of internal inner conflict about God, her ambivalence towards God. So she starts to head back towards Judah. But on the way, she stops to address her two daughters-in-law. And Here's what we read in verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you might find rest, each of you in the house of her husbands. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. Naomi turns to Orpah, and Ruth, and she issues them this double command. In Hebrew, that gives a sense of urgency. They need to change course, and they need to go home now. She appreciates all their care and their affection, but they are walking with Naomi down a road that she perceives only leads to deprivation and heartache. So go, she chides them. She says, return each to your mother's house. Why is Naomi trying to chase them away? 
I get this picture of all those kids' movies where the, the kid has to chase his beloved dog away for the, what's better for the dog, right? Like, why is she chasing them away? Well, it is because she loves them and she desires their best. Naomi knows firsthand how challenging it is to live as a foreigner in a strange land and she's experienced that prejudice and that difficulty and she doesn't wish such a fate upon her girls. Naomi is also eminently practical. Her new daughters are are still young and vibrant and their best chance at financial security and, and personal happiness lie in remarriage and in another opportunity to try and start families of their own. And we see this, Naomi explicitly sends them back to their mother's house because it was in the mother's bedroom that romantic matches were made and, and marriages were arranged and finalized. Can I just say how unusual it is, Naomi's relationship with her daughters-in-law? Mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law don't always get along this well. And one would expect relational distance, if not outright hostility between them. Orpah and Ruth, 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 Orpah and Ruth are like these foreign temptresses in the eyes of the Israelites. They're these young women of a different culture, different religious convictions that have gotten their claws into Naomi's sons. And what's more, in these in coarse human terms, they've been disappointing as brides. They gave Naomi no grandbabies, the family no heirs. And yet we discern here only warm fondness between these women. And we sense Orpah and Ruth's fierce attachment to their mother-in-law. And you have to realize that their whole bond at this point is voluntary. Orpah and Ruth's formal obligation to Naomi ended with their husband's death. In the eyes of society, the family tie has been severed and they owe her nothing. But they've stayed by her side as if daughters. They've mourned with her. They've comforted her in her grief. They've tended to her as her life has fallen apart around them. And Naomi testifies that they have shown her chesed. That's what it says in the Hebrew. They've shown her a devotion and a loving kindness that surpasses any of the requirements of duty. And so having given them this double command, now she issues, she gives them and sends them with a double blessing. She commends Orpah and Ruth not into the care of their gods, but into the care of her God, the one true God, the God of Israel, even as she sends them back to a pagan land. You see, Naomi recognizes that God's authority and his power is not limited by national or cultural boundary. He is God of all the earth. And there's another thing there that she starts to recognize. What she starts to say is that the Lord will show you chesed even though you are not of his people. She recognizes the expansiveness 
of God's heart, that it's his grace often overflows to those that we think do not deserve it or not involved with God at all. And she asserts that God will show himself strong, that he will prove himself sufficient and caring and enough for these two that have shown her such grace and devotion. She says, you know what? You've shown me grace, and I know my God will thrill to reciprocate with his mercy and grace shown and showered to you. She has this just magnificent confidence in the character of God. But then the story continues in verse 10. And they said to her, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that there may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and I should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I can't read this scene without thinking of saying goodbye to my abuelita, my grandmother, my little tiny Nicaraguan grandmother at the end of every summer. For most of my childhood, my grandmother and my grandfather lived in Tucson, Arizona, but they would come up and spend the hottest months of the year with us in the San Francisco Bay Area. And whenever it was time for them to leave, there would be this just flood of tears. My mom would cry, my dad would cry, but most of all, my twin sister and I would just weep. We hated to see her go. She was love embodied. And every time we parted, it was painful. Now, my grandmother, she was a living saint, but she was also mischievous and naughty. Nearly all of the first Spanish words we learned were all the playful profanity that you could say in Nicaragua. And she stood like four foot nothing, but she was just full of fire and spice. So whenever we start crying to see her go, she'd say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the bar and I'm going to find the grossest most lecherous guy in there. He was always French in her telling. I don't know why she would slander the French. She's like, I'm going to start flirting with him and kissing him so that you guys will no longer respect me and love me so you won't hurt so much when I go. That was her thing every single time. And I just get those vibes from Naomi. Orpah and Ruth, my, my empty-headed but wonderful daughters-in-law, my incredible and incredibly foolish girls, what are you thinking? You're not. You're being stupid. Why hitch your wagon to this old lady? I'm a sinking ship in a sack of bones. I should sleep in my coffin because I have one foot already in the grave. I can't help you any longer. She sounds like my grandmother in my head. You need families. You need husbands of your own. And I have no more sons to give you. I love you too much 
to let you stay. So go, shoo. What are we going to do? Start a, a commune for starving widows? That sounds nice. No, our family has been shattered. I can't give you anything. I can't show you the care and the security that you deserve. So I am going home to my people. You should do the same. And the Lord will keep you. He will love you because you are loving and you are lovely. As for me, I'm cursed. I'm a storm cloud. I will bring you only misery. Now go before I have to chase you away with my sandal. You brainless beauties. That was the other thing my grandmother did. I don't know if your grandmothers ever do that. She was spicy. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is one of the most powerful speeches in the Bible. But before we unpack it, I want to say farewell to Orpah. The narrator is careful not to criticize her. You may even call her the obedient daughter-in-law. And we don't know her story. Maybe God's favor went before her into Moab and she found a new family and provision The picture's complicated because Naomi says that she's returned to her people and her gods. God may be caring for her, but she gives him no credit or allegiance. You see, Orpah embraces Naomi's wise counsel, but Ruth embraces Naomi and Naomi's God. And one of the commentaries I was in this week has this incredible insight on their contrasting decisions. And allow me to share this quote with you. Orpah did the sensible, expected thing. Ruth, the extraordinary and unexpected. Thus Ruth models an adventurous faith, one willing to abandon the apparently sensible and venture into unknown territory. Whatever her motives, deep affection, a sense of loyalty, misguided idealism, she sacrificed her destiny to cling to an aged, hopeless mother-in-law. One may understand Orpah. One must emulate Ruth. We understand Orpah, her logic, her process, the path she takes. But scripture invites us and beckons us and and pleads with us to emulate Ruth. Why? Well, because Ruth goes all in and she experiences the salvation of God. 
How does Ruth go all in? Well, first, Ruth clings, it says, to her God-given spiritual family. Really interesting, this Hebrew word for cling is the same word used in Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling, hold fast to his wife. And here it's not erotic or romantic, but it is covenantal. She is making a lifelong commitment to Naomi. Wherever the future takes us, I will be by your side. Starving widows to the bitter end. We may no longer be family in the eyes of society, but we will be family to one another by God and by vow. I will be now and always your true-born daughter. Don't tell me to return to my mother's house because I cannot leave you. You're my spiritual mother, not the woman who gave me birth. So she clings to her God-given spiritual family. Second, she goes all in by clinging to God, our God of, of chesed, to humanity's only true hope and Savior. I love here how Ruth rebukes Naomi and starts to issue commands of her own. Don't tell me to abandon my course because that would require me to leave behind the God of Israel, to exchange him for some empty idol that cannot rescue or provide, for some some demon that demands the blood of children. No, I will make my home within the territory of the land of promise. You've prayed that I might have rest. That word rest in the Bible is often used as a synonym for the promised land. It's this place of settled security. It's this place where you can find peace and permanence and satisfaction. And and Naomi had said, hey, I pray that you find your own promised land to settle in. And Ruth says, no, my own promised land will be the promised land. I will abandon my national identity. I will adopt the national identity of the people of God. And I will do it whether your people receive me or not because you have assured me that Yahweh, your God, will receive me. So she says, this is real and this is forever. Even if you die, I'm not coming back to Moab. I'm not returning to this life, to these gods, even when you're in the ground And I know it's shameful to have your bones buried in foreign soil, but this soil will be foreign to me no longer because I will be here with you and I will be here under the wing of the Lord's refuge. She clings to Naomi, her spiritual, her God-given family, and she clings to God and his grace and his devotion to those he calls his own. And you've maybe already begun to hear it, but the third thing that she does is she makes a definitive break 
with her past. She turns from old attachments, old allegiances, old preferences, old identities. She can't be both a Moabite and an adoptive daughter of Israel. She can't worship both Yahweh, the God of Israel, and Chemosh, the God of the Moabites. She can't give her loyalty and devotion to the family God has planted her in and to the family she was born in. She has to choose. She has to settle and find rest in one conviction. And so she makes a break with her past. Fourth, Ruth counts the costs And we can't miss this. She rejects the promise of earthly security in order that she might experience the salvation that comes from heaven. Like I said, Naomi is eminently practical. Her best chance is to go back with her people, back with her family, back to her resources. In the eyes of the world, that's the wisest course But she assesses and she says, you know what? If I choose that path, one, it failed us in the past. It proved empty. And two, I can't ride two horses with one body. There's a different way that expression goes, but. (laughs) And I think Ruth has learned Elimelech's lesson. She's learned this core biblical truth. God cannot save you until you stop trying to save yourself. I think of the parallel of a drowning man who is panicked and thrashing in the ocean and working with great desperation to be the own answer to his prayers. And the Coast Guard has arrived, but they cannot pluck him out of the water until he surrenders to his own rescue. You know the logic, if anyone gets in the water with a panicked man in his terror, he will cause the drowning of them both. So to be saved, he has to first do what is illogical and unthinkable. He must stop swimming. He must embrace insecurity and helplessness in order to discover a power that is external to himself. And that would be a fearful thing if the Coast Guard wasn't right there. Just like it would be a fearful thing to reject the promises of our own effort and wisdom and strength if it wasn't for the presence of God's extraordinary strength and loyalty and devotion and power that is right there available to us. We cannot be saved by God's grace until we stop trying to save ourselves by our works. Or as Jesus puts it in the Gospel of Luke, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. She counts the cost. She lets the Lord empty her of all that natural security, all those things that she has trusted in in the past. And then she puts feet to her faith and follows God into the unknown. 
And I really do just love the drama of this passage. I love Naomi, who's a big talker. We'll continue to hear from her. But she's left speechless in the face of Ruth's commitment and conversion and resolve. And she can offer no further word of protest. I just imagine a smile coming across her face as she resigns to walking to Judah in silence with her faithful daughter, this newborn daughter of Israel, this newborn person of faith by her side. You see, we understand Orpah, but to experience God's salvation, we have to emulate Ruth. We have to go all in. So have you? Have you gone all in? That is what Scripture invites us to wrestle with today. And it's funny, I know we're supposed to be taking a break from the Gospel of Luke, but it's funny to me how the Spirit keeps making connections and drawing parallels back to the Gospel of Luke. I was stunned this week by how similar the message of this passage is to Jesus' own teaching in Luke chapter 9. You see, Luke recounts this. As they were going along the road, someone, this would-be disciple, said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm ready to go all in. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, me, I have nowhere to lay my head. Will you still follow me if it means that you must embrace vulnerability, and any promise of earthly security? Will you still follow me if your only refuge and provision is me? Because that is what will be required. To experience my salvation, Jesus says you must go all in. He goes on, verse 59 in Luke chapter 9. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The implication here in the original language is not that the, father, the man's father has died yet. It's not even the implication that he's about to die or that he's old or that he's sick the guy is saying, I will give you my allegiance. I will go wherever you tell me to go. I will do whatever you tell me to do. But first, I have a family priority that will take precedence. I need to get my kid into college, my, my mom into assisted living. I need to get to retirement. And then I'm all yours. We'll do it your way then. And Jesus says, no, to be my disciple, you must be all in. Your primary loyalty must be to me, to my will, to my methods, to my timing. You need to make a definitive break with your past. That doesn't mean we spurn our families of origin, but our first loyalty is to him Cling to me, he says, to my family, to my way, even 
over and above the demands of your own blood. And then 61, he goes on. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's no going back to Moab. There's no final party like old days. There's no one last indulgence, one last embrace of what's comfortable and familiar. You must go all in. You must put feet to your faith and follow Jesus into the unknown. It's the only way to experience his life and his salvation. It's our only way to experience a salvation that is by grace, through faith, that is not of our own power, but his power alone. And Ruth is really this beautiful picture of our conversion, of what it means to receive and to follow Jesus. It's covenantal. It's it's all in. It will change you and it will propel you out into adventure, following God into the great and to the scary unknown, into the wild where miracles can and must happen. And it is just amazing to me how we are, so many of us are trying to follow Jesus without pushing all our chips in. It's natural for us to want to try to be like Orpah, where we seek to experience the satisfaction, the contentment, the provision of God while also staying planted in Moab, where we kind of habitually return to our old lives, our old allegiances, our old gods, our old comfortable preferences. So I want to put those five points up on the screen again and see... Are there any of these places where you are failing to go all in, where you failed to trust God to be enough? Are you trying to do spiritual life without his spiritual family? I've got my wife. I've got my extended family. I don't, I don't need anything else. Go all in. Cling to the family that I have planted you in, you will need them for the journey. Have you clung to God and his grace? Are you still trying to serve multiple masters, looking to him for security and to your business savvy? Have you made a clean break with your past so many times? What keeps us from following Jesus is our misguided family loyalty. I've had some people say, I I think I'm coming to believe Jesus and what he says, but, but my mother didn't believe. So I can't follow him because that would mean I wouldn't get to see my mother. So you know what? Out of loyalty to her, I can't go. I can't make that plunge. So often we have these family loyalties. Not that we spurn our families, but that God says, I need to be first and you need to let me make you new. Are you 
willing to go all in and embrace insecurity of not knowing what comes next in your journey, not knowing how God will provide, but knowing he will provide. Or maybe you've settled all of those convictions inside of you, but you look down and you're still sitting comfortably in your comfort zone. I discovered that after 30 years in California. I'm like, God, I'll go anywhere. But somehow I've always stayed here. (laughs) I will go. Sometimes he plants us here, but sometimes he doesn't, and it's our resistance. So I want you to consider Ruth's example and consider your life. Ask, God, is there a way that I have not trusted you completely been fully converted and put my life in your hands because that is the only way for you to save me. I must first be emptied of all the other things that I'm trusting in and trust you completely. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray as the worship team comes forward to send us out singing. Dear God, Lord, we thank you for this example of these women of Ruth, someone who you rescued and she found in the strangest of circumstances. In the midst of tragedy, she learned your heart, your character. Looking at bad examples, she discovered that you were worthy of trust. She went all in, and literally human history was changed. May we trust you like that. And may we continue to know your heart that fiercely loves and is devoted to us and showers us with grace, even though we do not deserve it. Lord Jesus, you made a way. You secured a victory. And so we are comfortable to go all in, even if we can't see what will happen next. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.